The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. Dicono, eh, ma in Europa sono un po' preoccupati dalla Meloni. Che succederà? E che succederà? Che è finita la pacchia. Succederà che anche l'Italia si metterà a difendere i suoi interessi nazionali. That was Giorgia Meloni, leader of the far-right Brothers of Italy, saying that should her party prove victorious at the parliamentary elections on Sunday, the fun will be over and Italy will be able to defend its national interests. That's our lead item for this week. Welcome back to The Views Room, the podcast from Reuters Breaking Views, where columnists from around the world talk about the big stories of the week. I'm your host, Amy Donlan, coming to you from London. Rising inflation, a war in Ukraine and soaring debt are just a smattering of what's in the in-tray of Maloney if she becomes Prime Minister of Italy after Sunday's election. In this week's episode, my colleague Lisa Yuka, based in Milan, and I discuss what makes Maloney tick and what she's likely to prioritise as leader. Next up, Laura Silva-Lachlan delves into Amazon's battle with California over claims it is breaching antitrust rules. But what do Amazon shareholders think about its status as a monopoly? And what challenge does that raise as it tries to convince regulators it operates in a competitive landscape? Italy is heading to the polls on Sunday to elect a new parliament which may produce the first female prime minister. And here to chat to me about it in Italy is Lisa Yuka. Hi, Lisa. Hi. Well, I mean, this is a very interesting situation that's happening in Italy. I feel like there's a lot of change, I suppose, that happens at the top of Italy's government. But this, no doubt, is a very, very interesting woman. So tell me about this woman who could be Italy's next prime minister. So Giorgia Meloni, uh, she is the leader of the Brothers of Italy party, which is predicted to win at least 25% of the votes in the next election and therefore will be the strongest party in parliament. She's a she's a very interesting politician because uh, she's um, she's the leader of a party of a hard right party which has deep roots in Italy's post-fascist movement. She also has a, um, in the past been a Eurosceptic, so campaigning for Italy to leave the Euro, and has very strong stance when it comes to, you know, immigration. I mean, she, she's obviously against uh, Im- illegal immigration or what she describes as uh, illegal immigration. So it's quite a bit of a contradiction, if you want, because the party is uh, is very right wing and and she's a woman and she's uh, the leader of this party. And she has, uh, you know, somehow turned this uh, fringe political force into a dominant force in Italian politics. And she's also quite young for Italy. She's in her 40s. She she also has an interesting background. She was raised uh, by a single mother basically without a father in a modest family and in her memoir has made a you know, clear point of you know, having worked hard uh, to reach that leadership position. So she is a believer that hard work is the key uh, to success. And so Lisa, this is a, quite an about turn, would you say, for Italy? I mean, we've had, you've had Mario Draghi like running the country, a technocrat, somebody who was, you know, stood behind the euro as the ECB chief. 
what has sort of brought about this change in Italy, like as as in her popularity? Because we've obviously seen Marine Le Pen in France and, and that sort of the, that very right wing anti-immigration stance that seems to go down well with with certain parts of the population. What did what is going on in Italy in the economy, I suppose, that is sort of giving rise to her popularity? Of course, uh, the outgoing prime minister, as you rightly mentioned, is Mario Draghi, but it has to be said that uh, his government was not an elected government. I mean, he is not a politician, he's a technocrat, and he was picked uh, in the during the peak of the pandemic crisis by President Mattarella to lead a, government, a coalition government of nearly all parties. I mean, the only party in opposition was actually Meloni's party, Brothers of Italy. But, you know, he was never elected by the Italian population. I guess, you know, what supports her popularity now is a desire to maybe have something new, something different, because although she has been in government for a, a brief period, I mean, when she was quite young, she was actually the youngest minister ever in 2008 uh, under Silvio Berlusconi. But, you know, she's perceived as as the leader of a new force um, that uh, could maybe bring some change. And this desire of bringing change has been a constant theme in Italy. So in 2018, the last elections, uh, delivered a victory for an anti-establishment coalition of parties, in particular the Five Star Movement, which was clearly, you know, campaigning to sort of break up with tradition, to fight with Europe, to, to change things, you know, to change traditional politics. So I would say there's been a constant support for these anti-system forces uh, and and Meloni certainly perceived as you know belonging to that category um, so why, why is this happening now I mean has this got to do with the economy it's it's hard to say I mean of course uh, we are uh, currently facing potentially complex economic situation I mean right now the economy is growing I mean of course we did have a deep recession during the pandemic but then there was a very strong rebound and actually Italy rebounded more than other eurozone countries and this year is projected to grow uh, the GDP, I mean, is projected to grow above 3%. So it's still sort of going strong. But there are clouds gathering, obviously. I mean, inflation is above 8%. And this is kind of the highest in several decades. And 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 there's a question about energy, because Italy is not self-sufficient in terms of energy, and uh, is a big importer of Russian gas. Uh, and clearly, with the invasion of Ukraine, I mean, the whole situation has changed. And this has created, you know, pressure gas prices rising, high bills faced by the population. So there is maybe an under, even though the economy as a whole is still going strong, there is an undercurrent of um, concern. You know, people look ahead and they feel that they may not be able to pay uh, the electricity bills, that, that the, the jobs will be lost, you know, if, uh, if companies go belly up because of, you know, this high energy and inflation costs. So, the situation is kind of the mood, if you want, is changing in that sense. And so, Lisa, if you were, let's say, an investor in Italian debt and you were thinking about what her premiership might do to that debt, what would your thoughts be on that? As in, what are the sort of the challenges that she's facing and what are her some what are some of her answers to? I mean, Italy's debt is always a big topic in Europe. So what what are what are are her policies likely to drive up debt? Are they 
likely to keep it static or does she have I mean it, it depends on the country you look at but right wing tend to want to be a bit more physically conservative Yes, okay. Um, again, I mean, uh, you, when you look at Italian party, uh, you can never classify them in the traditional sort of left and right categories because there are always nuances. But you're right in highlighting that for investors, Italy's public debt sustainability is the key question and that has grown So uh, because of the pandemic. So it will probably be around 147% of GDP and it's above 2.7 trillion euros in, in in, uh, in absolute uh, numbers so it's 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 okay, a large so, so we put that into context a bit i mean where where was italy's debt before the financial crisis let's say in 2008 where were they where, what what was it around that level i think that you know to put it in in context i mean you should compare it to the eu average so the eu average today is at 95% it's gone up right because the average debt across the all eu has gone up because of the pandemic so but you can kind of see that you know if the average is 100 you know what's considered manageable if you want we are way above that and in terms of of um, in percentage terms versus GDP, it's the second highest in the Eurozone after Greece. Uh, but obviously, Italy is a much larger economy. So to cut a long story short, why does it matter? Because it's large and because if Italy were to be unable to sustain its debt, this would uh, spell doom for the single currency. I mean, it is as simple as that. So it, just to answer your question, what will she do? You know, I mean, is she going to sort of blow up the budget? Um, so far, she has tried to convey, particularly to international media, a reassuring message because she says that uh, um, she is pro-NATO, she is pro-EU and that a government potentially led by her would respect all existing rules, you know, and that includes fiscal rules. But obviously the proof will be in the pudding because in her coalition manifesto, because again, let's remember this government will be a coalition, it won't be a one party government. The coalition has a lot of promises. Uh, so, you know, lower taxes, higher pensions. I mean, you know, obviously big spending plans. I mean, they're, they're not quantified because there's there's nothing in those numbers, you know, there's nothing in terms of numbers. But, you know, the idea is to somehow you know, encourage free up the economy if you want, in particularly by lowering taxes. And you you may remember that uh, uh, Italy, when it comes to taxing labor, uh, has you know one of the highest uh, rate in Europe. So you know there there is an issue there. But the thing is, uh, because of the the high debt, uh, she probably won't have a lot of room. You know, the the room to maneuver is quite limited. So. In theory, if you want to uh, cut taxes, you have to cut spending elsewhere. Uh, where could that be possible? I mean, she's probably going to do away with some welfare um, uh, measures, which, for instance, were introduced by the five star uh, government that I told you about. And, and uh, you know, she could sort of free up some resources to maybe try and, and start lowering taxes. But if you also have to fight rising energy bills and you want to continue to throw money at citizens at, at companies which is what Italy has done I mean we're talking already 50 probably 60 billion euros have already been spent by the country so if you want to continue to do that because 
prices stay high and the economy needs to be going, then there will be a question mark on can you do it within the narrow path of, you know, keeping your debt uh, within sustainable limits. So, so that will be uh, that will be the key question. Very interesting. And Lisa, there is obviously a, an interesting element to her as well, which is that she she will be if she is if she if you know if her party does manage to build this coalition and, and gets the votes, she will be the first female prime minister of Italy. But she has some interesting views on women in power and how they get there. And you wrote a very, very interesting piece about that. I just wondered if you could tell me about that. So this is basically this idea of quotas, right? So you mandatorily have to have a certain percentage on your board, on your executive committee. And she is, she seems against that. Could you tell us yes. about that? No, she's definitely against that. So Italy has introduced mandatory quotas. I mean, the mandatory gender quotas. I mean, they're normally called female quotas because it's uh, it's traditionally been women which were less represented, but it's actually gender quotas, both for corporate boards, but also for politics, like, you know, lists presented by politicians, you know, cannot possibly have less than 40%, you know, of the least represented gender. And in her memoir, uh, which she published last year, but, you know, also in, in many public speeches, I mean, she's openly said that she's against those because she believes that, uh, you know, you should just work hard to achieve your goals, like she has done, <laughs> becoming a leader, and, and we, sh we shouldn't sort of introduce preferential treatments. However, all data at uh, European level show that uh, in countries where the quotas have not been introduced, the proportion of women, for instance, sitting on boards is much lower, and the rate of change of improvement rather is also very slow so quotas have helped you know and Italy for instance now has um, about 40 percent of women on average sitting on corporate boards and it was less than seven percent before the law was introduced in 2011 and why does it matter it matters because our country Italy has um, the lowest female employment rate, I mean, only 53% of all industrialized nation in the EU, uh, the second lowest overall. And, and uh, you know, there's many studies showing that uh, when women are in executive positions, they encourage female participation in those companies, and they also tend to pay women better. I mean, let's not forget that there's still a gap, um, which is quite wide <laughs> in Italy, but, you know, exists everywhere between female and male pay. So, I mean, she has said that she openly opposes those quotas. She's kind of suggested they should go. It's not part of an official program, but, you know, if they were to be scrapped, I mean, that would be a setback uh, for the country and for its economy. It's also kind of sending a, a bad message for the millions of female um, Italians that have not managed to succeed like Meloni has. Very interesting. Very interesting. Well, Lisa, we'll be watching very closely on Sunday. And thank you so much for that explainer. It was a pleasure to join. Amazon is in a legal wrangle with California about potentially breaching antitrust laws. Here to talk to me about it is Lauren Sylvan Lachlan. Hi, Lauren. Hi, how are you? Good. Very nice to chat to you and always interesting to see what Amazon is doing. I mean, they seem to be in a battle with many regulators just because of their sheer size 
the biggest, obviously, online retailer. So tell us about this story. What is specifically happening in California? So Amazon is seems to be the company that all regulators love to hate. And right now in California, the attorney general there has said, we don't like the way that you force the um, sellers of wares on your sites to list them for cheaper on Amazon than they do elsewhere. And effectively, they've blamed Amazon for penalizing companies that might list their goods for cheaper on competing websites like Target or Walmart. Yeah, it's sort of amusing because Amazon has kind of hit back saying, well, what do you want us to do? List goods for more expensive prices? Like that's sort of antithetical to antitrust. Of course, there's a lot more going on here. Lots of regulators think that Amazon has too much control of the market. They have a monopoly and they're trying to figure out the best way to crack that. Okay. And so, Lauren, your piece was really interesting because you're kind of looking at this from like an investor point of view. What does what do what do shareholders, what does the market think? Amazon is and, and what it's doing, what are its practices. So tell us about that. What what does the market really think about Amazon's potential in terms of revenue and its share of kind of like the online retail space? Yeah. So that's the funny thing about investors is like having a monopoly is really bad from a regulatory standpoint, but really good from an investor standpoint. And so if you look at Amazon's valuation, they have and have had for a very long time this really high multiple applied to their retail business. And the reason they do is because they have a lot of market power and investors really like this. So what I did in the piece was just sort of a little calculation to say, okay, there's two parts to Amazon's business. One is the cloud business. Let's strip that out and see the value that the market is ascribing to the retail business. And then let's just assume that rather than having this premium multiple that Amazon trades on, it just looked a little bit more like Walmart and traded on a lower multiple. What would that imply for Amazon's revenue? And like, lo and behold, if you kind of do all those number crunching and you back it out, it implies that the market thinks that Amazon has like a really huge part of the US e-commerce market, like maybe two thirds or more. And so it just was a fun-ish, probably not fun for Amazon, but a sort of fun exercise for us to go through to say, this is really what investors, this is how much power investors think Amazon has. So this is what's so interesting, I think, and is such an interesting way of looking at it, because if you are a regulator and you were to read your piece, you would say, well, there it is. That just shows us. So if you are California, I mean, are you the fact that they they have a monopoly or are likely to have a monopoly, if they get them at this stage, does that mean that they're more likely to be successful or as the market kind of grows, will it be harder to kind of go after them? Because you kind of see that in Europe, some of the big cases against some of the biggest tech companies were actually very hard to to sort of argue. I mean, first of all, just because the market says it doesn't mean it's right, you know? So like, and that's uh, the, the sort of regulators might take this piece and, and wave it around and say, hey, look, you know, the market says you have a monopoly, you must, but actually, you know, it's hard to say that. But what it does do is highlight the predicament that Amazon is in. Because on one hand, it can go out there and it can talk about how it has no pricing power and is completely weak. But that's a really poor signal to its investors. What it wants to do to its investors is show how strong it is, how much it's growing, how much share it has, how much that's going to continue. Um, and Amazon does have a lot of challenges facing its own business model. You know, they have this acquisition they did of Whole Foods and they have all of these brick and mortar stores. They 
they haven't totally figured out that like last mile delivery, that's an important part, a stated important part of their business. They still haven't really figured out profits in that retail business. So they, they still have a lot to show to investors when it comes to their retail business. The sort of credit that investors are giving them are for, is for having this market power that now they're going to have to talk themselves out of publicly when it comes to all these sort of various tenants that you're talking about in the U.S. and elsewhere. Amazing. So, I mean, I, I guess as well, what would be an interesting, I guess an interesting perspective is a lot of people are expecting a recession and, and people to pull back from retail. But I guess Amazon, if you're looking at what you're looking at, is it doesn't appear that that's the case in terms of the, the way that customers will pull back from, from retail. So there's two parts of this, I guess. There's what is the e-commerce pie and how much of that pie does Amazon have? So worst case scenario for Amazon is that that pie shrinks and it maintains or even grows its share of that pie such that regulators take notice, but it's not good for its own business. And I do think that Amazon has gotten so big and powerful at this point, clearly regulators are trying to find ways to crack into that business. And then, like, as you say, if you layer on you know, some sort of recession or economic downturn that's going to affect this retail business. It could be a very um, challenging environment for Amazon. Very interesting. Very interesting. Well, Lauren, thank you so much for for chatting to us today. And um, I'm looking forward to seeing what happens with California. Always interesting to see how these, these battles turn out. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Thomas Shum in Hong Kong and Sharon Lamb in Toronto. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on Cast, Megaphone, or wherever you like to listen. Check out our latest views on these stories and many others at BreakingViews.com and on Twitter, where our handle is at BreakingViews.